Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. is playing for the national title. It's too long and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Fan Nation Network, powered by Sports Illustrated, with episode 78 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast. We are talking about Syracuse's huge road win at Purdue, Aronde Gadsden being done for the season, and looking ahead to the matchup against Army on Saturday as the Orange looks to wrap up a perfect non-conference slate against the Cadets. Joining me as always, Josh Crawford, Sidney Suple, and Griffin Delapena. Football is back, and Bet Online is your number one information source for all your sports wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals from the NFL and college football at your fingertips with BetOnline's real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. From Week 1 all the way to the college football playoff and Super Bowl, BetOnline gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code Believe B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Syracuse tops Purdue 35-20 to to improve to 3-0 on the season. They are 3-0 for back-to-back seasons for the first time since 1959 and 1960. Anytime you do something for the first time in 63 years that's good, it is notable. So here we are, Syracuse is 3-0, and we had the luxury of having someone on site at Purdue in Sydney Suple, who is joining us along with Griffin and Josh, as usual. Sydney, I, I want to start with you because I'm curious your experience on site in terms of the atmosphere, the crowd, the environment that the Purdue fans created, and you could share a little bit of your experience with our listeners. I mean, the crowd was absolutely electric. I will say they created such a fun environment. I feel like for really both teams, and it started when Syracuse came out of the tunnel and you could just hear the boos, and it was almost like the players just absolutely embraced it. Like they were turning around to the crowd. They were holding their arms up. So they were definitely feeding off that energy. And they even said in around the third quarter that it was 61,441 fans in attendance, which is just a little bit like 8,000 shy from a sold out crowd, but it felt like a sold out crowd. And I think you really felt it in every third down when it was on the line and, you know, Purdue was knocking at the door and even Baber said that it was such a good environment for this team to learn how to play in and how to overcome because it's going to be rare, maybe Florida state, but there's not going to be a lot of crowds that were louder than in that moment on third down. So it was definitely a great learning experience. And then to come out on the other side with a win was huge. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your point about Florida state, I was just going to say they've got Florida state and North Carolina, both coming up which uh, both are really good teams. And so almost every one of their games has, has a pretty good atmosphere. So I think a good learning experience with those on the horizon, but also, you know, 61,400 and change that, that went to the game. That means about 60,000 people went home disappointed. And if, if you're a football team going on the road, you can send 60,000 people home sad. That's, that's a, a pretty cool thing. I think, I think for the fact that Syracuse accomplished that. So I'd appreciate your insight on that. Uh, but let's get into the game. The first thing I want to get to is it came out about an hour and a half or so, two hours, something like that, before kickoff that Ronde Gadsden is out for the remainder of the season. I think everyone pretty much expected he was not going to be in playing in this one, but we didn't know what his status was beyond that. We had no official update, even though we had heard some rumors here and there. So I'll go around the room. Everyone's reaction when you heard the news that Ronde was out for the season. Josh, we'll go to you first. A, 
we talked about the uh, in the ambiguous language that uh, Babers uses in terms of describing injuries. It leads for us to do nothing but speculation in terms of how long we think it's going to be out. Owie is a scientific term, sir. I just mm. wanted to point that out. <laughs> That's what I'm paying all my student loans for, to get to, to define technical terms like this. I got it. Yes. Noted. But no, besides that, like had kind of his status being up in the air, just a nuance with the general handling of injuries, especially with you having another offensive starter being named out for the season on your Thursday radio show. I feel like that would have been a prime opportunity to kind of prep some of us, the fans, and um, you know, just people in general about the status of arguably your most uh, important offensive player and best NFL prospect on this team. But that notwithstanding, um, I just wanted to see a continuation of the stuff that we saw uh, against Week 2 versus Western Michigan in terms of the receiving core c- to continue to stand up. And my thing was, you know, how would they respond to quite literally, as Sydney was found out on on in person, the bright lights of a FBS match, a, a, a P5 match in particular. So for me, that was a thing to where, you know, we like I said on last the last pod, we had you know two weeks of um substance in terms of guys being able to be able to stand up and show the uh, growing into the roles essentially with Dame, with Isaiah, with uh with Donovan, and um that was gonna be that was my biggest concern in them um, going coming out out of this game. But outside of the first half, where that was definitely a, a subpar performance, they um they answered the, the they answered the call when it needed to be answered. So, um, if I had to grade this receiver core without OG, definitely first half, second half grades. But a win is a win, and they did make some big plays in the second half. B B plus. I think that's a little more generous than most Syracuse fans would uh, would have thought because. There, there was a lot of negative things being said with all the drops that they had. So the fact that you give them a B or, or even a B plus, I think will take some by surprise. But here's here's the other thing that I, I'll point out. Even though they had the drops, their blocking downfield, especially in some of those Schrader runs, was outstanding. And so you have to consider that when you're evaluating their performance throughout. And as Josh noted, they did make some good catches, uh, some big catches in the second half. Um, you know, the drops were much more prevalent early. And Dino did say it was their first night game, and he thinks that perhaps some of the visuals because of that with the night sky and the bright lights, et cetera, may have played a part in it. Because a lot of these guys are are known quantities. Damian Alford, um, Isaiah Jones, uh, even Demarcus Adams a little bit. And those are not issues that they've had in the past. So this was a bit abnormal from, from that perspective. But I do think you need to consider how well they did block in the run game when you evaluate them as a whole. Want to eat healthy like Syracuse football players? then you want Purple Banana. Located on Marshall Street next to Varsity Pizza, Purple Banana is known for its acai bowls, but offers many more bases than just acai with over 25 toppings to choose from. They also offer smoothies, cold-pressed juices, oatmeal, and salad. Everything is made from fresh ingredients daily and is colorful, healthy, and delicious. The vast majority of the shop is gluten-free, vegan, and dairy-free with options for all health-specific needs. Purple Banana is your go-to shop for healthy, delicious options that will have you feeling like a Syracuse Orange athlete. Visit purplebanana315.com or purplebanana315 on Instagram for more. From now until the end of football season, participate in the Smoothie Showdown at Purple Banana to support Syracuse players and their charities. Caleb Okachuku, Justin Barron, and Marla Wax have each created a signature smoothie. One dollar from the purchase of each of their signature smoothies will go to the charity of the player's choice. The athlete who sells the most smoothies will earn an extra $1,000 for his charity, with an extra $200 going to the other player's charities as well. No, that's, that's the thing I was going to say in terms of, you know, this Purdue run defense being revamped. A lot of that was focused on, you know, how much they'll be able to stop LaQuinn Allen and that, that front seven. But you talk about the success that we had in the run game with a lot of the off-script plays from Schrader, you're turning a lot of those 10, 20-yard games into bigger chunk games, with, especially Hatchard. He had two uh, downfield blocks that I really liked, and that was uh, Brock's that sprung this run game to the success that we thought this Purdue defense would be able to stop. Obviously, it coming in a different way, but like you said, that was a big point that I wanted to emphasize in terms of the success of, the, the, the success of this receiving core. It's not always about you know who's getting the ball, who has the most yards, who has the most catches. That's a very underrated um, you know, aspect of the game. Specifically, when we have a team, you know, not us too much, but we, we run a lot of like RPO stuff, a lot of bubble stuff. The blocking with those slot receivers is very crucial. And with us not have really not having a lot of like physical specimens outside of Dame, a guy like 6'4, 6'5, 230. When you see a guy like Hatcher, that's probably 190 soaking wet. When you see a young guy like Donovan Brown not only putting in that effort, but being successful and springing those longer runs for Schrader, that was that could be the best thing they, they could do to recover from that first half of having the, the mumps a little bit. 
here's all you need to know. I'll give you this stat as far as Syracuse's rushing attack and the success that it had. And I know a lot of it was Garrett Schrader, but even still. The week before, when Purdue won at Virginia Tech, they gave up a total of 11 rushing yards. Virginia Tech averaged 0.5 yards per carry. Syracuse ran for 271 yards against the same Purdue defense and averaged 6.2 yards per carry. That is a huge difference. And, and I think, you know, the credit, obviously, there's cre- some credit to the offensive line. There's some credit to the quarterback and some of the plays that he made kind of by himself. But then also back to the original point, the wide receivers did a great job blocking downfield, which helped some of that as well. Uh, Griffin, your thoughts when you heard your immediate reaction when you heard that Aranda Gatson was going to be out for the remainder of the season? Yeah, if you guys remember, that was what I wrote my article on this week as well, just about how that wide receiver core was going to potentially step up in his absence. If well it was going planned, to be, by the way. Well planned. I would say so, a little bit. Uh, if it was just going to be a short amount of time or if it was going to be something long term. And when I first heard the news, it was a sense of a little bit of surprise. I didn't expect it to be that Liz Frank injury that will take you out for the rest of the year. And my first reaction was how bad I feel for him because he really was coming into this year with so much traction of potentially being a great NFL prospect. And to have that being ripped away from you with a game and a handful of plays after, you know, you're supposed to be coming out party this year with Garrett Schrader and another year in this offense, it's just horrible to see. And then it made me think, okay, well, now this is the real test for the wide receiver core moving forward with the bright lights in a very tough environment uh, against Purdue. And I think that, like you guys mentioned, the blocking was great, but only three receivers registered a catch. Like, I need to see a little bit more depth. And Josh mentioned Umari's blocks downfield. I love how he is at least utilizing him in-game, using his blocking schemes, but he still had two huge drops and very big points in the game. So I think that's something that you also have to keep your eyes on. And also, how are they going to use DeMarcus Adams moving forward, too? We saw late in the second half that he was getting a little bit more looks offensively. So I think that the offensive scheme is going to have to really evolve moving forward because we did not see anything in that tight end spot specifically down the field in passing routes because it was all blocking up front by Valari and Meg. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, here, here's the thing. I think the drops, the way I kind of approach it is it kind of raises an eyebrow, right? Like it's, Hmm. Okay. Now let's see what happens next week. You start having a couple of drops against army or even the week after that against Clemson, when you're in the, the friendly confines of the JMA wireless dome, where the backdrop and the night nighttime and all those types of things should not be an issue because it's the place you've played a million times, then now we'll start to have a conversation about something that's a clear glaring issue moving forward. But to your point, it certainly is, is a little bit of a red flag. And, uh, you know, any I think it's going to be tough for Syracuse to win games if they only have two receivers registering catches uh, moving forward. Sydney, your reaction when you first heard about the Aranda news? Yeah, it was actually really interesting. I learned being there that this was very schematically planned. They had known for a while that obviously this was going to happen. They knew shortly after the game of week two that he was out for the season, but they specifically didn't want anyone to know. And Babers credited over and over Aranda's just selfless, selflessness. The fact that nobody was able to find out because they wanted Purdue to have to game plan against them. And he said, look at the score. It ended up being, you know, a close game for majority of it. And he's like, if if they would have maybe had just another half of a day to game plan on one of our other parts that they couldn't because they were had to game plan in case Aranda came back. Um, so Babers felt that that kind of gave them a leg up. And that was the whole reason why it came very shortly before the game. So I thought that was really interesting. But going off of Griffin's point, the fact that only three receivers logged yards last week in week two, Syracuse had three receivers over 80 yards. And this week, you know, our highest was 70 yards, then it was 60 yards, and then it was 50 yards. So right there just tells you just the lack of presence the passing game had. And I feel like when that happens, Schrader feels this immense amount of weight that he has to put the team on his back and just run the ball. But every time that happens, it's just a potential risk and injury. And he even admitted that he might've stretched it too far at times because let's face it, he was beat up after the game 
and lucky to walk away without any, you know, injuries. But if you keep doing that week after week, eventually you may take a hit. It's tailgating season and no one does it better than Hoffman Sausage Company. Beer bratwurst, jalapeno cheddar sausage, kibasi, and bun length chicken sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German Franks and snappy grillers and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells Hoffman is a proud sponsor of Syracuse University Athletics. Yeah, and, and you know, back to the point that, that you made about the, the receivers and, and the yardage. Um, the leading, the, the player who led Syracuse in receptions was the running back. And now sometimes that's not necessarily a huge issue depending upon, but when you, as Griffin said, only have two wide receivers register catches, you have multiple wide receivers with drops. And most of the drops were on perfect passes down the field that would have been huge chunk plays. And then you combine that with the fact that your running back led the team in receptions. That's a little bit of a red flag. So we'll, we'll monitor that going forward, but from the drops, I now want to transition to the, other issue with holding on to the ball, which was anyone from Purdue who was carrying, essentially. They fumbled the ball seven times. Syracuse recovered three. They probably should have had five recoveries. At least one of them was, we'll get to the officials shortly because I'm not doing one without it talking about the officials and how that played out because that was just a joke. But the one in particular that that stood out was... Uh, it was late in the fourth quarter. Purdue was driving to try to tie the game. And Devin Mockaby, Purdue's running back, drops the ball. And uh, two Syracuse players jump on it. Uh, there's a huge, huge pile. Two two officials are standing right next to the pile. They both signal that it's Syracuse ball. And an official that's like five yards away, not next to the pile, and po- couldn't have possibly seen who recovered it overruled both of them and said it was Purdue ball. Then you go and they look at it on replay. They were pointing simultaneously opposite directions on on that call. Right. And and the one who was pointing Purdue ball came in from five yards away. And the other two officials that were right there uncovered the pile, saw a Syracuse player stand up with it and said Syracuse ball. But because the one overruled the other two, and then you look at the replay and it's just a scrum of, of humanity then you can't see where the ball is and who gets it, so you can't overturn it because there's nothing conclusive. So regardless, Purdue had an issue all night long hanging on to the ball. Um, that That's not an issue with the lights or the night sky, as you could blame possibly part of that for uh, the Syracuse receivers. But, you know, I guess two parts. One kind of tongue-in-cheek, who had worse hands, the Syracuse receivers or the, the Purdue runners? And then how much do you credit the fumble issues to the Syracuse defense and, and the, the hits they were making and the plays that they were making versus Purdue just being sloppy with the ball. Sydney, we'll go right back to you. I think you have to go with Purdue's runners. I mean, when you lose the game, that was the reason why they lost bottom line. And I would put most of the credit on Syracuse defense. I thought they did a tremendous job that wax did a great job. McDonald did a great, great job. Um, I thought all around they were able to make, the big plays when it counted and I felt like they just it wasn't necessarily that they got sloppy in terms of Purdue but it was in those big moments it was almost like they tensed up and they were trying to stretch it further and they were almost thinking one step ahead and not just focusing on their one job which is ball security and for that reason I felt like I put MVP obviously beside Schrader but really on the defense I thought the defense carried their weight and I'm curious with how much Coach Long implementing a new play at halftime had to do with the fumbles that they were able to force in the third and the fourth quarter. Yeah, those those are great points, uh, Griffin. Your your uh, reaction to Purdue's fumbling issues and and how much you credit Syracuse versus uh, just sloppiness from Purdue. Yeah, I don't even think it's close. I think it's obviously if in comparison to the drops for the Syracuse receivers uh, to Purdue with their ball security, that was dreadful, especially when those fumbles occurred. It's Big Ten football, right? That is the the DNA of the conference, ground and pound, and that is such a huge part of what Purdue has been over the years. I know last year they transitioned to more of an air raid offense, but 
with a lot of new personnel, a first-year head coach, that's something that from day one you are preaching. And the fact that they had Syracuse on the ropes in the second half, it really was self-inflicted wounds. And I do give, like Sydney mentioned, Marlowe on his strip sack, had on ball, perfectly placed on that. That was fantastically done. Derrick's was solid, but I really think that Justin Barron set the tone on that first drive, fourth and one, and for him to come up and, and stick him in the hole, granted it was going to be a turnover on downs anyway, but still to have that presence that, okay, we know what you guys are trying to do in the run game. You mentioned last week how there was a huge discrepancy in their win against Virginia Tech and how they were able to run all over them and the opposite uh, for their defense. But I really think that the mob in terms of the secondary, yes, it was a bend, don't break type of defensive display. But overall, the run game defense was the honestly, I think that's what had the win. I know all the credit in the world goes out to Garrett Schrader and what he did offensively. But Syracuse doesn't come out with a win if they don't get that amount of turnovers, especially late in the game. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Yeah, no question. No question. Uh, Josh, your thoughts on the whole hand situation and how much you credit Syracuse versus blame Purdue. Uh, I'm going I'm to go with the, the majority here, especially knowing the history of Purdue. Hudson Carr specifically, him fumbling four times. He doubled his total career turnover output in his career, having played 20 games in Texas, only having had two interceptions. And like Griffin referred to, specifically those turnovers, I think it was three fumbles, the first one on our goal line, and then two that Purdue was actually in the red zone driving in the second half. Those are, those are like automatic points that you're taking off the board. But like again, like what Griffin said, um, there was a couple of hat on uh, helmet on ball type of situations. I think Anwar Sparrow got one in the second half where he he ripped it out. And you know, being a former uh, you know, being in the locker room and being a former defensive guy, like that is a thing that usually during Wednesday, Thursday practices when you're ramped down the physicality a little bit that you do drill, you do drill ripping the ball out, you do drill hat helmet placement on the ball when you when you're arriving to the uh, arriving to a tackle, you do drill like. If you're the second, third guy there, if somebody is already standing up, make sure you get that ball out. And I don't think it is um, – like I said, we've all – all four of us have combined probably watched a lot more football than other people have forgotten. And we've I, – I would – I'll speak for the group and say I don't think we've ever seen a game with seven fumbles. One, two, even three, you can, you can throw up coincidentally, you know, the bright lights, being nervous about a big game. But at some point we do have to recognize, you know, the, the intentionality with the hat on helmet stuff and then going going for the strips that uh this this mob defense had. So for me, I'll probably put it 70-30 Purdue versus us, just because like you said, with the playmakers that we have, it's not super um accidental. But that was specifically with uh, talking with Tom, uh, Tom Deanhart, how confident not only he, but the rest of this Purdue football community was in Hudson Card, specifically his ability to protect the ball and get it to his playmakers to see him, you know, fumble four times. And it really be more of a, um, a miscommunication with, like, I guess the center and the offensive line exchange where a lot of them were things he didn't even have clearly cleanly get the ball before it was fumbled. That was something that, you know, I was, like I said, having a first-year uh, coach and, like, being in a primetime game, you can expect some jitters like that. But I'll, I'll, I'll be hard-pressed to think they'll ever play – they'll play that bad or that loose with the football um, any time this season, honestly. So ha- glad that it happened against, against us. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. To your point – if a team fumbles the ball three times in one game, people are saying, what's going on with them? They have poor ball security. They they can't hang on to the ball. And Purdue fumbled it more than twice that amount in one game. It It's crazy. And Hudson Card had to come into the game without throwing interception, and Marlo Wax ended that streak. Without throwing one this season, I should say. And Marlo Wax ended that. Um, you know, that I mentioned it kind of to start off uh, that segment as far as the officiating goes. And before I get on my soapbox, I'm going to let you all talk about it for just a moment each. Uh, Sydney, we'll start with you. What was the reaction at the stadium to the officiating? I know I heard Purdue fans booing quite a bit. I don't think either team was real thrilled with the way the game was officiated, honestly. It seemed like the only thing they were calling consistently was anytime you tackled the quarterback below his chest, they called it a low a low hit and and it was a, a roughing the passer. Not really sure why they decided to, to harp on that. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen so many of those called in one game. 
but Purdue fans were booing quite a bit. Syracuse fans on social media were going crazy in several of the calls. What was uh, the mood and the reaction from uh, those in attendance as far as uh, the reaction to the officiating? Even within the walls of the press box, I felt like I was hearing the crowd as if they were right next to me with how loud their boos were. But I think the funniest part was you had on your left, it was like, you know, Syracuse's coordinators, and then you had Purdue's, and you could just see them like slamming the wall, slamming the desk, depending on if they agreed with one call, disagreed with the other. So it was just nobody was happy at different times. Um, I think you guys had a lot better angle than I did on the officiating. It's hard when you're looking, you know, at the field, not really seeing kind of the, the replay, but I'll go back to the press conference again. I thought it was really interesting. Baber said he prides himself on always being able to see the calls from the naked eye and he feels he's pretty accurate. And he said, this was the first game he ever felt like he really had to go back and watch it because he was like, there was multiple calls that he wasn't seeing from his eye that they were being called. So I'm curious now that he has a little bit of time to go back, digest what his thoughts will be on that. Um, but no one was happy at yeah. the end of the day with officiating. No question. And just a, a little side note there on the Dino thing. Uh, Syracuse has done this throughout Dino's uh, tenure here. And I, I think it's pretty common across the country, but I can only speak for what Syracuse does. Uh, they'll go through and review a game. And what they'll do is they'll take the calls that they think were the most significant and that they disagree with the most, they'll put them kind of all on a tape or, you know, an email or a video file or whatever it is that they do. They'll send it off to the ACC league office for them to review to basically get an explanation as to why either the officials call was right or for them to come back and say, Nope, you were right. The officials got this wrong. Um, so they, they bring that to the attention of the league office um, whenever that happens on a week-to-week basis, and I'm sure that's pretty common across the country. So, um, you know, he was referring to the fact that he has to go back and watch the tape for clarification on some of those things, and that's what the end result will be, is if he goes back, watches the tape, still believes that what he saw live is was still the right uh, the right call and the officials called something different, he'll compile all of those or someone in his department uh, under him, one of his staff will compile all of those and send it off to the league office for further explanation. Uh, Griffin, your, your uh, reaction watching it on television to uh, the way the game was officiated. Yeah, it was just difficult with the amount of inconsistency and it wasn't one-sided. It was just happening to Purdue, even though their fans probably thought that, that was the case. But it was on both sides. I just never felt like they had true command of the game, and that's always very concerning for the viewer and also for both teams on the field. When the referees, I think, I don't know if it was too big of a moment for them or what, but I think a lot of it was them jumping to conclusions quickly and not being able to take a step back, digest what happened, and actually think, okay, here's what we have to go with, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I I follow exactly what you're saying. I've I've always said my biggest thing, basketball, football, any type of officiating is consistency. If you're going to let defensive backs be physical with the wide receivers and let them get handsy and and whatever throughout the route, and you're not going to call stuff kind of ticky tacky as far as pass interference and holding, then do that the whole game, and I'm fine. I don't care if. But what you can't have is a situation like when Schrader threw the ball to Alfred in the end zone, and as he's trying to come back to the ball and make a catch the Purdue defensive back runs into him and basically tackles him before the ball gets there and there's no call. And then later on you call Purdue for defense, defensive pass interference, which in a vacuum I think was defensive pass interference, but it was much less contact than what they had let go previously. So it's, that's the lack of consistency that, that you're uh, alluding to there. Josh, your thoughts on, on the official. I know you're not as big as, as criticizing the officials as I am. Honestly, few are, but um, as a former player, you know, how difficult is it when, when you have that inconsistencies and, and you're disagreeing with, with a lot of calls during the game to adjust and, and just focus on your assignments? Um, you know, for me, we talked about it a little bit before coming on. I just think with the human aspect and honestly how prevalent AI is, is in our society, refereeing and having human refs, just human error is kind of a, a banked in thing that you have to, you know, kind of um, work around in your game plan. 
for me, it comes down to are they taking are they putting points on the board or they're taking points off the board? So like you said with the uh, the DPI on Damien, that's unequivocally points that you're taking off the board for us. And that's something that like you you're talking about the the review process where uh, Babers reviews the tape and sends it into the ACC for uh to get an explanation from it, that's something that I feel like is warranted and something that you can't allow the, that type of inconsistency that you and Griffin are referring to to, to continue to play. But for me, like you said, I, I play contrarian to think to where we had some some questionable uh, DPI calls on us, and there were a few, mainly one drive in the second half for, for us, where DPI calls on Purdue kind of were essentially where our biggest offense, you know, to start that second half. So I see a lot of that stuff kind of uh, evening out in, in the end, you know, referees are human. They do know when they make a bad call, whether it's, you know, at a home stadium or an away stadium. And they do have that instinct to try to, um, you know, get a makeup call as much as any league officials and the commissioners would not like to hear that. That is a human instinct that they have. So I don't go too hard on the um, on the referees. I don't, like I said, that's something that playing for so long, you kind of have to work into the game. You, just, you work around in your game plan, but taking points off the board is unacceptable. And I think that, you know, as much justification or get back as you're going to get with us moving up the field on, on some, some ticky-tack DPI calls for Purdue, you know, it's football. And, again, until we put out the AI referees and the robot referees where every call is unequivocally going to be correct, that's kind of the stuff that we're, um, that the human nature of officiating is going to give you. You know, to your point with the makeup calls, there absolutely was, was one of those in the fourth quarter that was pretty blatant. Uh, Syracuse got called for a face mask. They showed the replay, and the – Purdue running back was kind of uh, twisting in the hole. And so it kind of looked like his face or his head was getting twisted. And the Syracuse defender who was tackling him, his arm was kind of across his shoulder to his chest and kind of pulled on his jersey that way to pull him around. And it could kind of looked quickly like it could have been a face mask and the official called it. Then he watched the replay and he realized that the Syracuse player never actually touched nor grabbed the face mask. And it just had that appearance. The very next play, the only time offensive holding was called all game was called on Purdue. And, and they didn't block any differently on that play than they had the whole rest of the game. So that was 100% a makeup call for, oops, we called face mask. We saw the replay. It wasn't a face mask. Here's a flag on Purdue to even things out. Um, I personally hate the makeup call. If you make a call that's that's wrong and you screw up, you screw up. Don't compound it by then screwing up on the next play purposely. I don't like that. That, that's, that bothers me. But regardless – you know, the the inconsistencies and the things of that nature and the human nature as, aspect of it, those things happen. What can't happen is you can't have two people right next to a pile and, and a recovery site on a fumble that see the recovery, give one team possession, and then a guy who's so far away there's no possible way he could see it, he comes in and overrules them. That can't happen. That's the type of stuff. Or they call uh, someone for roughing the passer on a low hit, and they show the replay, and the guy hit him on the hit, which is not a low hit. That's that's the type of stuff that I I have an issue with or and I don't know if this is a rule thing, but each team got called for one of these. They got called for roughing the passer for a blow to the head where like a fingertip barely grazes the face mask type of situation. They say blow to the head, roughing the passer. They've got to do something with that rule to get rid of that because, you know, barely brushing against someone's head. There's got to be some subjectivity to that, not calling that roughing the passer. But I digress. Officiating stinks. And part of the reason that it stinks is because there's no accountability. If there's no accountability when you do poorly at your job, there's no incentive to get better because you do poorly and you keep getting the benefits as if you do well. That's pretty much the way it works. Um, you know, but that's that's all we'll say. Fortunately for Syracuse, it didn't cost them the game. I don't think from a Purdue standpoint, it cost them the game either. So, you know, at least uh, we feel like the better team won on the field, regardless of how the officials uh, played a part in all of that. The best player on the field Saturday night was none other than Garrett Schrader. I think it was pretty obvious right from the start that Purdue was going to have a real hard time containing him, especially his running ability. He was flat out spectacular. He ran for 195 yards, set a Syracuse quarterback record with four rushing touchdowns in the game, which was also a career high for him. You know, Syracuse doesn't win this game without that performance from Garrett Schrader. He was spectacular throughout. Griffin, we'll start with you. You know, how do you sort of put into words how fantastic he was Saturday night? So I know that the people listening can't see what I'm wearing right now, but it is a Bill shirt. Very nice. Bill's in the wind column. I know where uh, he's going and, with this. And 
I'm not just saying this because I am a Bills fan, but Garrett Schrader last night was very reminiscent of a young Josh Allen. In the first half, he was making every single play, embracing every single hit that came his way, and was sincerely putting the team on his back. And I think what you saw in the second half is a much more complete game from a quarterback, even though he did still take some hits and probably didn't throw the ball away when he should have most of the time. To be able to be that dynamic and on a game when if you're going to win it with your legs, he's going to do that. He's not afraid to embrace the contact or to recognize, okay, it's a third and four right now. Everybody knows that this is going to be a run up the middle. I'm going to pull out the best ball fake that I've ever seen in my entire life and have that entire defense swarm to the middle of the field and time it out perfectly on a bootleg, not once but twice. I was going to say he did that twice. It it was sincerely one of the most impressive collegiate performances I, I have seen in that regard from everybody knowing that from the start, He was not going to beat them in the air. He was going to beat them with their legs, and they still couldn't do it. Yeah, it it was – those fakes were otherworldly. It's it's almost too bad they didn't have the Manning cast for that game. Um, I understand Syracuse-Purdue is not going to get the attention that is worthy of the Manning cast. I get it. But just to see Eli and Peyton's reaction to those two fakes would have been priceless. Uh, Sydney, to you, your thoughts on seeing uh, what Garrett Schrader did – Saturday night, you saw him do it live. So your uh, reaction to what he he did on the field? Oh, it was, I mean, absolutely amazing. And I think the most impressive thing is just in that moment, how you're able to like keep your composure. I mean, you watch it even as a slow-mo because obviously you saw it live, but watching it back, just like you see him wait that like half a second, which like when you're playing that half a second feels like an eternity of just like, pausing and just being so calm in it so I feel like he is like just such an actor in the way that he's able to sell it and you know it's something they said they practice day in and day out you know so this is nothing new to them and they actually have like a little competition where the coaches are trying to you know basically see if they can pick it and if if they fool even the coaches then they have a physical punishment so this is something that has been in the works throughout training camps throughout practices and they've just been ready to take it. And Schrader says it's really a feel thing. So when he gets that feels when he goes for it. And I mean, it was impressive to do it not once, but twice. I am very curious though how this will change other teams game plan against him and how much more aware they're going to be. And if he's really able to use it much more moving forward. Yeah, I think they're going to have to pick their spots. And I think Dino kind of alluded to that post game that and and you wrote about it in your article that you know he made note of the fact that the plan was going into this game that they were going to use his legs more than they had in the previous games and part of that is to do with the opponent and the importance of the game you hope that next week against army that he won't have to as much but you start getting into the games against the clemsons and the north carolinas and that's a huge weapon that is hard for other teams to defend and and without a ronde gadston that's something they're going to have to rely upon a little bit more if they want to pull one of those type of upsets. Josh, your reaction to Garrett Schrader's performance and how that can help Syracuse, especially when they get through the meat of their schedule coming up. Um, we're picking, we're going with the one word game. I'd have to go domination. Honestly, we talk about a guy in Hudson card that in most 90, 95% of college quarterback matchups, you got a guy throwing for over 300 yards, throw over 320 yards. You could decisively say that he was the guy that won the matchup. Especially with you know going into this week, comparing like I said the the Gator the Gator, the Garrett Strader experience, somebody that's firmly been in the man camp on him for about a year or so now to see the fact that he was able to to do the things that he was able to do with his legs, and most importantly that we've all pointed out, stay upright and stay healthy. Took a couple you know took a couple hard hits. The one at the end of the second, the one at the end of the first half wasn't the best. A couple in the second half was like you know him him, him sliding, but taking some of that pressure, getting some of that pressure inside of the pocket and, you know, having to elude uh, that and to get the first down at the expense of taking some big hits, some big hits. You definitely want to uh, see that calm down. But for a guy that I've said, you know, I don't like to see him using his legs much because, A, you know, like I said, it is a, a toll on his body. And at least going back to last year, we had a, a running back one. We had a guy that was about to be an NFL running back, a hybrid candidate, Sean Tucker. 
I just didn't think that Garrett Strader needed to be the guy carrying the ball 20 to 25 times. But that was an emphatic no going into this game. A guy that you said, especially with OG being down, he was able to use his legs effectively. And the one thing that I do want to point out that one a big a little bit of a nuance that I wanted to see going into this game, it wasn't a lot of force pressure. Shout out to Mark Petrie stepping in for David Wallabow. You know, uh, Nick Scroton, probably their best pure edge rusher, a guy that uh, Tom Dinar said is, could be an NFL guy. I think he had a sack at the end of the half, uh, at the end of the game or TFL, but for the most part, Petrie picked a shutout against him. It was more pressure from the interior than anything else that uh, that got uh, straight a little bit, uh, forced him out of the pocket a little bit. But the fact that he was able to, uh, that he was the decision maker and when he was able to escape, when he was able to go downfield and use his legs versus being forced by um, the pocket collapsing, that was the biggest thing for me. So, honestly, going forward, like, A, Garrett Strader has uh, probably convincingly won me over in terms of um, his, his discretion and using his legs and when he can and can't deploy them. And honestly, like I said, it was, this, is, this, is a, this is a high bar to set. You're not going to get almost 200 yards rushing from your quarterback every game, but he has kind of solidified this as a legitimate option that can be used throughout the season, not only because of his effectiveness, but his ability to, to be uh, his discernment to know when to get down, when to slide, which is something that he really struggled with a lot more last year. Yeah, he he definitely, definitely struggled with that last year quite a bit, and that's a, a big reason why he wasn't nearly as effective down the stretch of the season, which is why they went from 6-0 and to 6-5 and before they pulled off the regular season finale at Boston College. Um, Syracuse obviously trying to, you know, quell some of his aggressiveness in certain situations so that they don't have a repeat of that. But there's no question that he was easily the best player on the field Saturday night. And he is a reason why when they go up against some of these bigger teams, they'll have a chance. He just still has to be smart about it. So when you look at Syracuse and, and the way that, that this schedule has laid itself out, how important was this win? And how does this roll into their matchup with army um, next week? We'll start with you. We'll go right back to you, Josh. Um, you know, I, I've been screaming from the, the tops of Tip Hill out here since everybody could see it. Because since everybody could hear the, the beginning of the season, this was the big swing game. I think that, you know, Sydney uh, super optimistically predicted them to win. I can't remember what you predicted, Griffin, but I actually predicted them to lose this game even before we knew about uh, Wallabout and Ronde Gaston going down. So not only a shout out to the homie, because, you know, like I said, give me his props, you know, predicting a nice, sizable, chunky win for us. But the fact that this team is able to um, kind of solidify and validate that resilience that they've been talking about the first couple of weeks and, you know, that that preparation factor with them beating Colgate, with them beating a Western Michigan and that laser focus that they have. This is kind of that, like I said, that uh, validation in terms of, you know, we can do this against, uh, you know, uh, top-tier opponents, equally yoked opponents, as I should say. So for me, you're looking, in, looking through the AC, looking at the rest of the ACC and not trying to get, like I said, too optimistic and get your hopes too high up. But Clemson, obviously in the down year, we know about the resurgence of this Florida State program. But having somebody that's been uh, – that's from Memphis, I know about the ups and downs of the Mike Novell experience and the Florida State program in general. They're prone to play down the competition. See, last last week uh, on Saturday, almost losing to BC. Um, and uh, besides uh, Duke and UNC, which is crazy to say for football, they got two really stud quarterbacks and not a lot of stuff around it, honestly. So being able to have this kind of validating performance in week three and kind of how seeing the ACC kind of shake itself, shake itself up a little bit, um, I think Sydney's going to be a, a, a lot closer to right than I imagine her being at the beginning of the season, honestly. Yeah, and if if you look at the schedule and you put the Florida State and North Carolina games kind of aside as you know the most difficult, especially considering both are on the road, there's not a single game other than those two that Syracuse can't win. And and that's if they lose those two and win all the rest of them, they're going to be sitting at ten and two and they're going to have a shot to be in the ACC championship game. Um, you know, they, I, I think losing two conference games, you probably would end up with, with Florida state and North Carolina in that game. But could, could those teams, you know, North Carolina lose two to three games. They're not supposed to, I mean, you, you just never know how it's going to play out, but um, yeah, this, this was huge. You, you should be now four and zero going into your ACC opener against Clemson in the dome and, uh, you know, I think you feel like you've got a realistic shot in that game. So this getting this win certainly sets them up for the rest of the schedule. Sydney, your reaction to the win and how important it was. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why you guys ever doubted me to begin with. <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> no, but I think this game was absolutely huge. I mean, echoing what Josh said, I feel like 
you know, Syracuse came out and has made some really dominant wins in the first two weeks, but they haven't really gotten the respect from around the country because, you know, they're not a power five team that they're playing. So I think everyone, you know, you even watch college game day in the morning, you know, you heard them be like, Oh, Syracuse haven't really played anyone tough yet. Well, now they have, they paced, they played a legitimate opponent and they did well against Purdue, you know, obviously we got exposed in the passing game, but everything, despite that, we walk away with a win. And I feel like just going into what we know is going to be a gauntlet of a schedule towards the middle where you have Clemson and then you go on the road three weekends in a row. You have to win games like the one in Purdue if you want a shot and momentum and even the confidence to go play at Florida State at North Carolina. No so, question. Big confidence no question. builder. Griffin, your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, you guys also doubted me about the score about Purdue, too. Everybody was giving me grief last week. I said 31-17. Not that far off. Your margin so, of – I mean, it, it, you were three points off on one and four on the other. Um, and, and I thought I was going to have it for a little bit there because I predicted 27-21 yeah, and it was 28-20. And, you know – Schrader just had to score that last touchdown. He just took a knee there. I would have been dead on almost, but you, you know, I, I think you paid him something on the side for that one. <laughs> I digress. Slid him a little something and shine to make sure you got the score right. Now, see, yeah. Hey, you can do that with NIL now. Hey, I need you to get this score so I look right in my podcast. You got it, sir. <laughs> I might have to try that this week, too. I still haven't had my prediction down, but regardless <laughs> – I still think with how Syracuse has played, you look at now the entire country, they're the only team that is top five in both points per game and points allowed fewest in the country. So they are now, I think, getting that attention that they do deserve. Playing a team like Army, I saw the line earlier today, they open up as eight, eight and a half point favorites, which I think is pretty solid against uh, an Army team that comes in two and one. Just had a very nice win against UTSA. So they're not a team that obviously is, is going to be, you know, a wow game, like going to put Syracuse on the map. But it's still an opponent that you have to respect. And I think if you compare them against Colgate and Western Michigan, definitely in that upper echelon in comparison to them. So if you win that game, uh, it really sucks that Clemson had to lose week one to Duke because that game could have been circled as a college game day game. Uh, but anyway, I still think that it's great to continue this momentum going into that tough part of your chunk schedule in the middle of the season at home against Clemson, then going on the road for the gauntlet against Florida State and UNC. And I don't think enough people are talking about playing a short week at Virginia Tech on a Thursday and your third game on the road, on the road in a row. That's a mouthful to say. I think that that game could also be a swing game for Syracuse, even though I do think that the Orange are a better team than the Hokies. I still think that just with everything else going on at that point in the season, that could be a really tough game. It absolutely could be. Now, here's here's the thing. It, it is a short week in that it's not on a Saturday, but Syracuse has a bye the Saturday before. Right. That is That is the good thing that for Syracuse is they don't have a full two weeks to prepare, but they've got a week and a half. Whereas, uh, and, and it's the same thing for Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech has the Saturday before off as well, which personally, I think if you're going to have teams play Thursday night games, then that's how you should do it. Yeah, I think. absolutely. You absolutely. know, get, have it come off of a bye. So you both teams get a week and a half to prepare. You know, I, I think it makes perfect sense. But as far as Army goes, here's, here's a note I want to make about Army. Um, we know that they're they're one of the military academy schools, and so they're going to be disciplined. They're going to be tough. They're not going to be scared of any situation you throw at them, um, and they're going to run the ball a ton. They have run for 713 yards so far in three games. Uh, that's that's well over 200 yards a game. They're averaging four and a half yards carry. Conversely, they've only thrown for 533 yards in three games, so less than 200 yards a game. So we know what what they're going to be bringing to the table. That said. Army is two and one. Um, they did have a, a solid eight point win at UTSA last week. However, in week one, they lost to UL Monroe, who is a team that just barely beat some school named Lamar. Um, not Lamar Jackson, just a school named Lamar. So not, not just one dude against the whole team. Um, the, the point of this is 
Army is a challenge in that they're going to schematically be different than what you're used to seeing in a lot of ways, um, especially offensively. But you should be better, more skilled, talented, more physical in basically every position on the field. It's a, t- it's a game you should win, especially when you're at home. Um, UTSA is – they're a team that played Houston really tough. They played Texas State, who won at Baylor earlier this season. Uh, really, they beat that team. Um, so, you know, Army has played some some decent teams already this season, but um, we'll we'll see I, how it plays out. And I think for the UTSA game, uh, Frank Harris was out for them, which is kind of especially with a, a lower FBS school like that. That quarterback is yeah. uber important for them, so they were probably operating at against a UTSA at 75 percent of their proficiency at best. Yes, and and they still scored 29 points on Army. So, you know, Army's scheme offensively is going to give Syracuse some problems here and there. It's just going to be so different than what they're used to, um, you know, normally week to week. But offensively, Syracuse should have its way. It it should be able to dictate things um, at the line of scrimmage. It should be able to throw the ball. Garrett shouldn't have to use his legs nearly as much. Uh, but we'll we'll obviously see how it plays out. We'll break it all down. If Syracuse can get to four and zero going into that Clemson game, that is going to be a massive game. Unfortunately, it's not going to be college game day because Clemson lost earlier this season. But it will still be a massive game. Syracuse is already on the on the others receiving votes. They're twelfth there, so they win again. They'll probably move up a little bit, and now you beat Clemson, and Syracuse will be ranked at that point. They're five and zero after having beaten Clemson. So everything is in front of Syracuse. Everything is set up for for them to get to the nine wins and make nine to ten wins, make Sydney look like a genius. Um, she's already looked very smart so far, better than all of us, but we could have kind of probably predicted that going into the season. So uh, kudos to her. Shout out to Syracuse for starting 3-0 for the first time uh, in back-to-back seasons for the first time in 60 years. But that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Syracuse podcast. And we'll see you Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.